glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. First John 2.29, we're just going to read on, right on down through chapter 3, verse 3. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. I love these verses, including if you were to go back to verse 28, uh, where it talks about abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. I would encourage you to take time to notice in your reading of the New Testament how often the confidence in Christ's return is attached to the way we live in our lives today. Second Peter chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 10 on down through about verse 12 makes reference to this. If we know that the things here are going to be destroyed, what manner of persons ought we to be in, in all holy, in holy conversation and uh, soberness and so forth. We The knowledge that Christ is coming again, the knowledge that we're going to be glorified together with, and the knowledge that this earth is going to be destroyed should affect the way we live. It should affect us in a, in a great way. Many times, I, be, I believe this, and I think you can see it reflected in the teaching and preaching right now, I think the doctrine of the, the coming of Christ has been neglected, and I think, think we see the effect of that on God's people. Uh, so Christianity, so to speak, especially in America over recent years has, I'm sad to say, become for many people nothing more than a self-help religion to where you become a Christian that you might live a better life, that you might have more stability in your life. Uh, uh, bear with me for just a moment as we get, get back to our message here in a moment. I was talking to the boys last night about Jacob and when he told Rachel and Leah, we're going to leave paid an Aram and your dad Laban and we're going to go back to the land of my fathers and so forth as God had told him to do this. And Rachel and Leah's response was, well, that's fine with us because our dad has taken all of our money and there's nothing here for us anyway. Now, they agreed to do what he said. They said, fine, we'll comply with what God wants. We'll do that. But the reason we'll comply is we think it'll be better for us there than it is here. A lot of people say, well, I'm glad I'm a Christian, even if it's, you know, I, I say a lot of people, I've heard people say this, even if it's not true, it's still a good life to live. Well, tell that to some guy locked in prison in China. You can say that as an American taking it easy, but for a lot of Christians, that's not even true. For many people, Christianity, we're as pragmatic as so-called Christians as the world is. I Become a Christian, you'll have a better marriage. Become a Christian, you'll be a better employee. You will be, but your employer may not like you better. Just because you're doing right doesn't mean you're... You may be a conviction to your employer, and now that you're an honest employee, he may fire you. So this idea that, hey, you become a Christian so that your world becomes a better, you know, you have a better marriage, better finances, better home, more stability in your life, that's not even in the Bible, number one. Number two, when we do that, it takes our eyes off of eternity and says Christianity really is about giving you a nicer life on earth. It's about keeping you out of trouble and 
giving you things that are better. Well, I agree. You will be a better person as a Christian than if you're lost. But may I say this? Our hope is not here. And we lose sight of the return of Jesus Christ, then you'll not follow Christ for long, I don't think. Because our treasure is when He comes again and when we get to finally meet Him face to face. If the coming again of Christ is not true, the Christian religion is vain. That is exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. So our hope is not set on, am I going to get a better job next year? Am I going to get a better this next week? Is life going to get better because I'm a Christian? Our hope is everything will be glory when Christ returns. And it won't be until then. And I hope we can get a hold of that. And I believe and I pray that as we emphasize both of the preaching and teaching through 1 John and the teaching of the second coming in Sunday school, that we'll be reminded what a fundamental doctrine the return of Christ is. You pull the imminent physical return of Jesus Christ out of the Christian faith and you leave nothing but a skeleton. Because he's living, he's coming again. And so our hope is built upon that day. And having said all that, that's really... What John is emphasizing here, he's saying to them, look, you know that if he is righteous, uh, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. He says that right after just saying uh, that we are to abide in him, that we not be ashamed before him at his coming. And then uh, we explained last week the statement in verse 29, you know that no man is righteous. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 12 tells us there's none that doeth good, no, not one. There's none righteous, not one. So righteousness does not naturally come from us but you know that he is righteous. So then if someone is actually doing righteousness, the natural conclusion is they've got to be saved. Now, I'm not talking about what appears to be righteous. John's talking about definitive righteousness. Someone who is living by faith and doing what is right. Only What he's saying is only born-again people can do that. Only born-again people do righteousness. You know if someone is doing what's right, if they're doing righteousness... They're born of him because he's righteous, and that's where righteousness comes from. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, he's connecting verse 3, 1, chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 29. Behold, he's just talked about the person that does righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Let me emphasize three things tonight in these four verses. Number one, uh, our privilege as the sons of God. John begins to deal with uh, the privilege that we have to be called sons of God. Uh, but I believe this. I believe in the context, uh, as we just read last week, he wrote many of these things because of those that were seducing them. It's abundantly clear those people came in and were saying they were elite. They had a unique knowledge. They were distinct from everyone else. And what John is saying is what distinguishes us from the rest of the world is we're God's children. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. Now, why does he use that term? Well, because in John 1.12, he said, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Uh, in Acts 17, if you read that, there is, a, there is a reference to the fact that God is the Father of all mankind. Now, how many of us understand there's a difference in God being the Father as our Creator and God being a Father to us as our Savior? God is the Creator of all men, but we don't believe in what's called the universal fatherhood of God, meaning you can't call any fellow human your brother. 
We are all made of the same blood. We are all made by the same God. But we are not all spiritually in the same family. Those are in the family of God. I had a, I included verse 29 because John is referring to those who've been born of him as him being their father. He is the father to those who've been born into his family. And so then uh, he, he says, What manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. And he emphasizes three things. The birth that we have into the family of God through the life of Jesus Christ. We know that if he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. First Peter 1.23 says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth, and abideth forever. Uh, we are reminded, Titus chapter 3, uh, verse 4, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, or verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 29 of 1 John 2, John emphasizes the birth into the family of God through the life of Christ. But then in chapter 3, verse 1, he talks about the bestowal of God's love on us when he says, Behold, what manner of love. That's an interesting statement. I read two different men that said that Greek word, what manner, has to do with and alludes to uh, something being from another country, like the manner of someone else's conduct in another country. And the, the emphasis would be there, God has bestowed a love on us that's not known on earth. What manner of love that God would allow us to be called His sons. Now you think about that. Another fellow that we were talking to on Sunday afternoon, we couldn't get him to agree that there was a heaven and a hell. He said he didn't believe that, just thought he would go to the dirt. But he said, but I will say this, we didn't just happen to come here. Things didn't happen by chance. And what he began to tell us is, I believe in a creator. I believe we were created and we were designed. And so we spoke with him for a few minutes about that. And the context of that, he said, you know, if you think about it, when you compare us to the size of the universe, we're nothing but little specks. We're just little specks of dust. I said, does that not magnify the greatness of God? That God would know the number of hairs on the head of a speck of dust? And that he would give his son to die for a speck of dust? That magnifies the love of God. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us. Do you realize he allows us to share sonship with his only begotten son, Jesus Christ? We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, meaning we are sharing in the inheritance of, of Jesus Christ. You know, I think John's trying to say, you have a high and holy position. Don't let those come in around you who say that their intellectualism elevates you above you. No, when you were born into the family of God, you were given a high and holy position what manner of love that God would stoop down to us and bring us into his family and call us his sons. I read one writer, I'd never had this thought, never heard of this or thought of this, but he said, interestingly enough, there are many different ways to bring someone into a family. You can be born into a family. You can be adopted into a family. Or you can marry into a family. And God has provided for us to be able to come into his family all three ways. We are born again. Through the faith in Jesus Christ, we're given eternal life. We're born into God's family. But he refers to adopting us. We have the adoption of sons. And, of course, we are one day, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, going to be married to the Savior as a bride. And God's made sure that on every level we are going to be members of his family through... One person gets credit for that. Jesus Christ. That we are made heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ through the work of Christ. 
And John is emphasizing these, these people. You need to understand the privilege that you have that God has bestowed on you. The understanding of that word bestowed has the idea of giving something to us permanently. Something bestowed on you as a permanent title. It's the same idea as we're sealed by the Spirit unto the day of redemption. And so what manner of love that God hath bestowed on us, that uh, God, the Father bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. You know what? How does the world treat Christianity? I'm talking about the lost, unbelieving world. They treat Christians as the highest of society or the lowest. I heard just a snippet on the news just before church this evening. I guess the March Madness is going on and Oral Roberts University is moving through the ranks. And there are those suggesting that they should have been banned from the tournament because they are a Christian university that rejects the sodomite lifestyle. That's how the world feels about Christians, especially the world we live in. That if you don't go along with their so-called values, they're not values at all, then you're not worth being a part of anything. Just that's what the cancel culture is all about that you keep hearing about. If you don't agree with the system, we'll just be done with you. They've been canceling babies for years now. It's truth, is it not? My point is this. That's the way the world feels about Christianity. Don't expect the world... And here's what I believe is a, is a concern for God's people we need to be very aware of. There's a lot of things being done by churches to try to get the world to like us. John's going to deal with this in chapter 3. He says, think it not strange if the world hates you. Don't think it's strange if the world hates you. They hated him. If they hate him, they'll hate us because if he's righteous and we're righteous, they're going to feel about us the same way they do about him. And he's dealing with it here. He's solidifying in their own consciousness. Look, look at what... Don't worry about the way the world treats you. And he's going to address that here in just a minute. You look at how God the Father treats you, what manner of love he hath bestowed on us so we should be called the sons of God. You rejoice in your position as a child of God. Now, i got a question. How do we know we're sons of God? He's going to deal with that in a moment. It does not yet appear what we shall be. I mean, well, I know, I know that Dawson's a child of God because he just walked through that wall. And only God's children can do that. I know Dawson's a child of God because he can raise the dead. Only, Do we have any kind of outward sign like that? that I mean, oh, Adeline's a child of God. She's got a halo on her head. No, not like that. I mean, can you, can you really, I mean, unless you spend time around somebody, can you look at somebody walking down the street and say, yep, there's a Christian? No, no, maybe somebody say they look and act like they're Christian, but you don't know if they're Christian or not. Now, you can appear like you're nice and righteous and be as ugly as the, the world is. My point is this, <laughs> we know we're children of God because he said so. That's how we know, by the word of God. When we take God at his word, he verifies his word in our hearts and assures us that we're his children. And so then, the privilege of the sons of God is we have the privilege of having been birthed into his family. That's 1 John 2.29. We have the privilege of the bestowal of his love that he would call us his sons and daughters. Romans 5.8 again, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I was talking to a man in the jail yesterday and was trying to magnify the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, can you imagine, uh, you know, dying for your enemies? Can you imagine uh, being kind to those who would spit on you and berate you? He said, oh, I've done that. I said, you have. <laughs> and we went at it just a little bit more, and he understood, no, he didn't know that kind of love. My point is this. 
You and I can, can rejoice in the love of God seen in Christ's sacrifice for us. I have never demonstrated the kind of love the Lord Jesus demonstrated on the cross. I would love to, but I have not. I'll be honest with you. If I faced what he faced in Gethsemane, I would have called for the legions of angels. Wouldn't you? Absolutely I would have. That's why I'm not the Savior and it's why you're not. He did it. What manner of love? What manner of love? You think about what it costs Christ so that you and I can be called the sons of God. What manner of love God, the Father hath bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. There's a call to awareness. That's why we're preaching this tonight. He says, behold, you need to stop and consider how gracious and good God has been that he would call us his sons. That's a miracle in what manner of love. And then there's not only a call for awareness in that behold what manner of love, there's a call for appreciation. I do believe this. If you lose sight as a Christian of God's love for you, you'll grow cold-hearted and get out of God's will. It is the love of Christ that constraineth us. Don't ever lose sight. You know what happens when we lose sight of the love of Christ and His substitution for us on the cross? We leave our first love. Do you remember how tender your heart felt toward God when you knew He had saved you through what He did for you on the cross? Can you lose that or leave that as a Christian? Oh, you can, and so can I. And so there's a call for appreciation. Uh, beloved, uh, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of the sons of God. Then he says this, Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. I asked earlier, can you recognize a Christian walking down the street? Well, you and I actually may be able to if we talk to him for a few minutes. But do you think the world meets you and says, you're, you're a child of God, aren't you? How many, of us, how many of you the last time a lost person, an unbelieving person said, you're in the family of God, aren't you? Has anybody ever had that happen? I've had people say something like this, oh, you're a Christian or you're, you're a preacher or you're one of those. What they're saying is, you sound religious to me. But the world doesn't spot us. Do they say, oh, you better be careful how you treat them. They're God's children. Ooh, better be careful how you treat them. No, they don't care. They don't believe in God. They don't believe, care about His children. They have no idea. You know what? When Jesus came on earth, we get this idea that He walked among men and they oh, the Son of God. No. They said, oh, the Son of the carpenter, not the Son of God. They just saw Him as a man from Nazareth who could do some really interesting things. The world did not recognize Him when He came. So what must it makes us think they'll recognize us? If we're waiting for the world to say, wow, we better be careful how we treat churches. God might get us. Think again. They know us not because they knew him not. He came unto his own. His own received him not. And so then what he says to us here is, you are the sons of God. What manner of love God hath bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. But therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Look if you would at John chapter 1, verse 10. The gospel of John. The gospel of John chapter 1, verse 10. May I say that if, if we start conducting our personal Christian lives or conducting the ministry of the local church in order to get the world's acknowledgement, approval, and applause, we'll have to sin to do it. Because they'll never appreciate us for being God's children. The lost world will never appreciate that. When they figured out that Jesus was saying he was the only begotten Son of God, why they crucified him. Truth? Is that not the statement that got him crucified by Annas and Caiaphas? 
said, are you, are you the Christ? And he said, you'll see the Son of Man ascending into glory. And I'm paraphrasing. And when he said that and made the claim to being the, the Christ, they said, you've heard it from his own mouth, crucify him. Do you think if they'd actually known that he is actually the Son of God, they would have done that? Paul talks about that later. No, they, they didn't know. They were blind. They're blind to us too. This is why, listen, this is why you can knock up on a stranger's door, say, I want to give you two books of the Bible that will tell you about how God loves you and they treat you like the scum of the earth sometimes. How can they do that? Because to them, we're no different than any other religion or cult or anybody else out there. They don't look at us and say, oh, Oh, you're the real deal. We have to prove that. We'll get into the rest of chapter 3 and you'll see what it is about the life of the child of God that demonstrates the nature of God in us. It's not some appearance in our bodies and flesh. No, no. John chapter 1, verse 10. The Bible speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ says, He was in the world and the world was made by Him. What's the rest of it say? And the world knew Him not. Meaning, our Creator came to visit us. That's the, that's the wording that uh, is used in Luke chapter 1. He came to visit us in the person of Jesus Christ, and when He showed up, we didn't recognize Him. Now today, God is working on earth. He is indwelling His children, working through us. We are truly sons of God. And what a wonderful thing that is. But the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him either. They don't recognize us for who we are. Why would John say this? Because we can get all bent out of shape thinking, they don't treat me like who I am. (laughs) Well, don't expect that. Don't expect that. And so then, the world didn't know him. They won't know us either. Again, we should not expect the world's acknowledgement, appreciation, approval, or applause. Don't look for the world's acknowledgement, appreciation, approval, or applause. You remember the Gadarene when he got saved? The Lord. Now, how many of you think that if we could assure the city fathers here in Bonners Ferry that we have something that will clean up every drunk in town, how many of you think they would be excited? How many of you think that some of the, some of the police officers in town would be really excited if some of the drug addicts in town, we actually saw them saved and their lives cleaned up. What, what response would you expect from the community if this church could be used to see these people's lives cleaned up and changed? What response would you expect? I mean, they spend millions of dollars trying to do it. Wouldn't you expect them to say, well done. How can we incorporate what you're doing into our systems? But you know what they do? Old Lester Roloff was doing a great job in Texas years ago, in Corpus Christi, Texas. He uh, had a local church he was pastoring. He opened up homes for men and women and boys and girls who were troubled and addicted. And what he did, he brought them in. He preached the gospel to them a couple times a day, gave them work to do. And what do you know? God started saving them and changing them. And what did the state do? Shut him down. Why? Because they, they saw it as a threat. When the Gadarene got saved and instead of running around without his clothes on and cutting himself and living in the tombs and troubling everyone and scaring everyone half to death, all they knew to do was lock him up and they couldn't keep him locked up. And when he's sitting clothed and in his right mind, how, what was their response? They were filled with fear and they asked Jesus, would you please leave our town? <laughs> Does the world make any sense? It makes no sense at all. 
But listen, expectations can ruin a lot of things. And you and I need not have false expectations of this world. We're not here to be loved by the world. I'm going to tell you something. As much as I know I'm standing here, this misunderstanding or ignorance on this concept is ruining a lot of churches in our land. The reason we've modified the way we do church is to get unbelieving people to like and love us. That's not our goal. Our goal is to please our Father, maintain fellowship with Him, and do His work till He comes, whatever they think. We're to love them. Though they don't love us, we're to love them. Uh, But the fact of the matter is we need to have a good understanding of this truth that the world didn't know him, and they're not going to know us. Number two, we've seen our privilege as sons of God in chapter 2, verse 29, chapter 3, verse 1. Now let's look at our prospect as sons of God. Verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Boy, if you need a verse to say you don't have to wait to find out if you're going to get saved, he doesn't say you might be sons of God, you may become sons of God. He says now are we sons of God. How could he say that? Because they've been born of him. When you're born, you're a son. Makes sense, doesn't it? You know why I can say Colton is my son? Because he was born into our family. Isn't that rocket science? Is he now my son? He was my son on May 17, 2004. Are you still my son? He always will be. Nothing will change that. He was born into the family. He's a son. Same with us. Once you're born again, once you've received eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ from God, then you're a son. So now are we sons of God? And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, meaning what we are right now is not, it doesn't appear what we're going to be like one day in our glorified state. It does not, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. People say, what's our glorified body going to be like? And I like to go to this verse and say, we don't know yet. We just know to be like Jesus Christ. That's what we do know. We'll, we'll be in such a state that instead of him being invisible to us, he'll be visible to us. We'll be able to see him because we'll be shed of this old corrupt flesh that, that keeps us from seeing him literally and physically. And so this is talking about our, our physical appearance. It's talking about our body that we'll receive. And here's the thing. What John's making very clear is though we are sons of God, we're not yet in our glorified state. There are those who use First John to teach that we've reached sinless perfection. They mutilate the book because he says right here we've not reached that yet. We're still in this body. We look like every other person. We still have bodies that lose hair, get old, decay, and die. And so it's nothing about our physical appearance or, or miraculous ability that sets us apart from the rest of the world. He'll talk about in the rest of chapter 3, he will go into great detail and talk about the fact that it's our chastity and our charity that sets us apart. Not our glorified state. It is our holiness that sets us apart, not our glorification. We're not yet glorified. And so he's, he's articulating that. So our present condition, a couple of things about that. Now are we the sons of God? That's an absolute, but it is not apparent to people that that's what we are. As I said already, you don't look at someone and say, Oh, a son of God just by their physical appearance. Now, if you and I could walk through walls. Now, say this. It's part of the folly of the charismatic movement trying to demonstrate to the world that we're sons of God by signs and wonders and all these kinds of things. God never said we're to do that. I mean, you notice this, that in any movement that emphasizes emotions and outward signs lacks personal holiness and purity. If you've lived very long, been around many people claiming to be Christians, you'll find 
that that movement that emphasizes outward signs to try to demonstrate to the world who we are other than through the way God has called us to ends up missing the mark and bringing shame to the name of Christ because immorality creeps in and other uh, things that should not be in the life of Christians. So our present condition, now are we the sons of God, that's absolute, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We've already uh, dealt with that. And then we see in the end of verse 2, our promised conformity says it doth not appear yet what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is a promised conformity. First Corinthians 15 that we read on Sunday morning in Sunday school deals with this. Uh, it says, uh, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed from this incorru- this corruptible body has to put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. Look very quickly at Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul. Here's what I love about our Bible. The continuity of the Bible. You realize uh, that uh, the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul, uh, they perhaps met each other one time in Jerusalem for a brief moment, but they didn't spend time sitting down consorting over how to write the Bible. They had the same person telling them what to write. So Paul describes in Philippians chapter 3 precisely what John describes in 1 John chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, For our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. That's precisely what John's talking about. We don't know exactly what that glorified body is going to be like other than we know it's going to be like him. You know, that's amazing to me as he is affirming again that Jesus Christ is in a body. He's not a spirit. He's in a body. We'll be like, fashioned like unto his glorious what? Body. That's exactly John will deal with in 1 John 4. If someone denies that Jesus is the Christ, if they deny that he's come in the flesh, he already dealt with that, then they have the spirit of Antichrist. So there's a promised conformity that we'll be like him when he appears. When he comes, we'll be transformed and changed to be like him. Quite mysterious, but that's what the Bible says. You say, how will that look? What will it be like? Uh, it'll be like the Lord. Amen. So our privilege as the sons of God, we've been given birth through his life. We've had the bestowal of his love. He would call us his sons, yet we see the blindness of the lost. Though we are the sons of God, the world does not recognize that and realize that. Our prospect, uh, we are sons of God, and we will one day be conformed to Christ, having a glorious body like his own. Thirdly, our purification as the sons of God. I believe verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 are there to set up for verse 3 because the rest of the chapters are going to talk about our, our conduct and our behavior as members of God's family, how we conduct ourselves in the world and how we conduct ourselves toward one another. What did Jesus say would be the mark of his disciples? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you what? Love one another. Now, by the way, and you hear me say this probably every time I address love because it's such an issue of our day. As Gnosticism was in that day, this is an issue in our day. What better way for Satan to do harm to God's good name than redefining love? He, most people, let me ask something, your concept of love tonight, where has it been formed from? Where did you get your understanding of what love is and what it looks like? Many a person, including Christians, did not get it from the Bible. They got it from a screen or a book. You know, man's best effort at love still has selfishness in it. 
our best efforts at love. You know, I love my wife, but there are great benefits to me in loving her. When I love her, she flourishes and makes my life better. I mean, Ephesians 5, honestly, it dealt with that. If a man love his wife, he loving himself. <laughs> That's not God's love. God loved us when there was no benefit to him at all whatsoever. And we're supposed to learn to love each other like that and love our, our enemies like that. And I'm just trying to say this. The rest of the chapter will deal with what marks us as his children. So he's established this matter of, hey, we are the sons of God. We've been birthed into his family. We've been called the sons of God. And we are right now the sons of God. We're not yet glorified. But look at this, verse 3. This, this says that every man that hath this hope. What hope? The hope that one day will be glorified and be like our Savior when we see him. Our hope is his coming. Our hope is not... Better health until I kick the bucket. I want as good health as I can have so I can serve the Lord as long as I can and not feel terrible in the process. But you know what? One of these days I'm going to die. My body's going to quit and I'm going to exit this world and in a few years I'll be forgotten. True, isn't it? Oh, that's hopeful. Well, that's not our hope. You know what? One day I'm going to meet the Savior and spend eternity with Him, and if I invested what I had here, this little bitty tidbit of time I've got, compared to eternity, in living for Him, for all eternity I'll be glad. Now that is hope. To say I can be happy for all eternity for how I spent one little sliver of time because of Jesus Christ. He makes that possible. That is eternal hope. Friends, we've got to get our minds and our hearts back on eternal things. One of the reasons so many Christians have compromised the way they live their daily lives is because we are looking at the world approving us, not at the day when we meet our Savior. Every man that hath this hope in him, what hope? The hope of Christ's return. The hope of a glorified body, not a corrupt one. The hope of eternity in heaven with him. Every man that hath this hope in him does what? purifieth himself, even as he is pure. How many of you know that when you go to visit someone's house and you get there and you realize, whew, they are a really tidy housekeeper. And then one day you say, why don't you come visit my house sometime? Ladies, help me. You can help me better than me. We men don't care. If you know that some super tidy housekeeper is going to visit your house, does that affect how you prepare for their coming? Help me not, does it? Now, if you knew you were having somebody over there that lives in a pig pen, you'd say, well, maybe they come over and learn a lesson from me. Right? But if you got somebody that's like, man, I mean, they got everything organized. They have a compartment for everything, and it's squeaky clean. There's not even dust on the top of their refrigerator. Well, there's something wrong with somebody that have dust on the top of their refrigerator. But there's, this is somebody that's like that, and they're going to come visit your house. What are you going to do leading up to the day of their coming? You're going to purify your house, aren't you? Now, the next verse is going to say, we know there's no... Verse 5 is going to tell us, we know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin, right? The verse 3 says, every man that hath this hope in him, the hope of meeting Christ in person and being conformed to him, purifieth himself even as he is pure, meaning we are preparing for meet, meeting purity personified. You know what? When I know I'm going to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't want him to find bitterness in my soul upon my arrival in his presence. 
I don't want him finding lust in my heart. I don't want him finding defilement on my body because I know he's pure. Now, I'm going to tell you, you can tell a Christian doesn't have their eyes set on meeting Christ and not purifying. You know what? You don't have to clean up for the world. Unless cleaning up makes more money, they don't care. Right? Or, or builds a name or does something that's worldly. But if we're preparing to meet Christ, you're going to be purifying yourself. Every man, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Number one, this purification begins with a persuasion. This hope is not like we use the word hope, and we say this every time we deal with this subject. But hope in the Bible is not, it's not filled with uncertainty. Someone says, um, you know, is your team going to win the basketball tournament? Well, I hope so. That's not hope. That's, I mean, it's a form of hope. That's not the kind of hope we're talking about here. Hebrews 6 defines the kind of hope we're talking about. It is both steadfast and sure. It's an anchor of the soul. Our hope is this. Uh, it's, an, it's an expectation of something that you know is going to happen. The number one word to define hope is expectation. You know what? We know Christ is coming again. We know it because his word says so, and he's not a liar. Therefore, we have the hope in us. Look, you say, you're going to get a new body? I am. You hope so? I know so. Therefore, that gives me hope. I know so. Because I know God told the truth. I know one day I'm going to meet him face to face. My faith will become sight. And so this hope is an earnest expectation of something that you know is going to take place. Living in expectancy of a coming event that you know is coming. I remember, and many of you do, when you got married, my wife and I, we, we knew before we got married she had to graduate school. I had graduated schooling I was in. We were going to graduate in May and get married in June. On back about March, I went and rented a house and I started painting the house and putting some flooring down in the kitchen and preparing a place because of my hope. We had a date set. We knew it was not as if she was still trying to decide if she was going to marry me. She had said yes, accepted a ring. We both wanted to get married to one another. We had an event on the calendar. And I understand death could have stopped that and things could stop that. So still a less than perfect illustration But it wasn't like, well, I hope we're going to get married, so I'm going to plan just in case. No, I knew we were getting married, so I was planning because I knew it was coming. We were preparing for a certain event. There are a lot of Christians that live like, well, Jesus might come, so I'll do some things just in case he does. That is not hope. I know he's coming, and so I'm going to prepare for when he does. It begins with a persuasion. That persuasion results in purification. He did not say, and every man that purifieth himself hath the hope. Now, don't miss this. That's not what he said. Go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. He, he doesn't say, um, he says in verse John 2, 29, If ye know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. And so the idea would be the doing of righteousness is the evidence of having been born again. Even so here, the purification of life is the demonstration of the hope. Every man that hath the hope in, and you already have the hope, you already know because you've been born again, he's coming to get you. And because you know you're saved, you clean your life up. I never got traction in personal, practical sanctification until I really got nailed down my salvation. And when the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, the preaching of His Word said, I saved you, and I am, you're, you're accountable to me. Why are you living like you are? I saved you with my own blood. And when God did that, and I said, man, 
I'm saved and the only reason I'm still saved is because He's good. I don't deserve to be saved. I deserve for Him to boot me out of His family, never speak to me again, but He gave me His word that if He'd save me, He'd keep me that way. And friend, when that happened, my life started getting really clean. But not until then. A lot of people say, oh, you believe one saved, always saved. It's a license to sin. Not if you believe it the Bible way. It is a, it is a liberty to prepare for the day that we're all looking for. And that's the day we'll meet Him. You think of the best day in your life thus far. You think of the best day you've ever had. And it cannot compare to the day we meet Christ. It cannot compare. You think of the best event in your life, the most exciting time in your life, the most joyful time, the deepest peace you've ever known. And I don't think it can even hold a candle to the day we meet our Savior. Do you realize when we meet Him, we don't have to worry about sin, not ever, not one more time. Not one more disappointment, not one more frustration, not one more sense of guilt. Once we meet our Savior, every wretched thing about this world is behind us. Why would we not long for that day? I believe we ought to be pleading with Him, Lord, when, 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 how long? Amen? That's our hope is His coming. And when you know that that's where you're going, having assurance, now are we the sons of God. That's not yet appear what we shall be, but we know we'll be like him. Not we think. We know we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. And so then we see the persuasion. It's a hope that's certain. Leads to purification. And then we know what our and who our pattern is. It says purifieth himself what? Even as he is pure. You purify because you know he's pure. He's the standard. How do you set standards of what's right and wrong in your life? You just know Christ and get His mind and you'll have to start conforming and complying with that because you're preparing to meet Him. Amen? You think about this. Man, if we can, sometimes we lack honesty on these things, but if we can be honest before God and with ourselves, would I be ashamed to be thinking that, believing that, or doing that when the Lord comes? Would would I be ashamed if he showed up right now and caught me away in the condition I'm in? Now, I'll be honest with you. If if an important visitor were going to come to my house and they showed up in the morning, I wasn't dressed yet. I'm still in my, you know, my pajamas. That would embarrass me thoroughly. I'd want to be ready. I'd want to be dressed, hair combed, shaved looking my best. I heard a story from years ago in the state of Colorado. I forget what president it was. Had received a letter from someone there, just a a regular citizen, requesting a visit with the president. I remember all the details, but the president decided we're going to drive over to their house in the motorcade and I'm going to visit them at their home. Unannounced. And they answered the door in their pajamas to the president. They were embarrassed. Now, you say they didn't have a heads up. Well, we do, but we don't. Do we know the day or the hour? We've got to live ready. Every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whose responsibility is for us to purify? That's ours. We have the Spirit of God. We have his word. We know, what he is. We know him through his word, and it's our job to prepare ourselves to meet him according to his own pattern. Amen? I don't know about you tonight. I'm glad that I can know I'm a child of God. What a privilege. I'm glad I have a prospect that it's, this is not it. This isn't the end. 
Your worst day on earth will be your worst day ever if you're saved. That's it. Never get any worse. We have a prospect of meeting the Lord and being given a new body. And because of that, what's the effect? Purification of life. I'll say it again. I believe the de-emphasis of the coming of Christ has brought about the callousness and lukewarmness and carnality that we see in so many of our churches today. We've so emphasized having a good life here and not on what our real true hope is. It's resulted in corruption. Let's get our eyes on the Lord and reminded of that hope and live in accordance with it. Amen.